Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, until further notice, we are not meeting physically in the church building and instead are live streaming our worship service on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We hope you will join us either on our website or on our Facebook page for worship. Now, here is this week's message. Hey, well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you as we start our brand new sermon series called The Essentials, which of course is a word you've heard a hundred thousand times over the past couple of months. Everybody's been defining essentials. Everyone's been talking about them. I mean, the government's defined the essential, right? Like they decided what essential businesses could stay open. And just as a side thought, if this ever happens again, um, I'm writing a petition starter, and I hope you'll sign it with me, that barbershops are deemed essential, because I'm like a kid on Christmas uh, today, because tomorrow I finally get my hair cut, and I don't know about you, but I am very excited about that. But let's be honest, this has been a very weird journey, because our federal government, our state government, even local government, are all having conversations about, well... What's essential? What's essential to the government? What essential employees do they need? They're even talking about what essential businesses can be open. And then each one of us have been rummaging around trying to find the essentials we need to actually live with. And who would have thought toilet paper would have become so scarce? I don't understand it. Maybe you do. I don't know what's changed with the need of toilet paper, but I mean, it actually is hard to find. So it's a big essential. And so at every level of influence between our government and businesses and our personal life, everybody's talking about or decided what the essentials were or are. So I decided I guess it's time for the church. We might as well talk about the essentials as well. Because perhaps we will never experience or have an opportunity to really think through this like we have right now. Because I'd guess for many of you, if you grew up in church, this is probably the longest you've ever been away from gathering together with other people in the church. So many of us were longing for it. We, we aren't used to being without it. And, and you know, when something's taken away, you really miss it. And, and you can really see the value it has. And so before we start coming back together or as we start coming back together, I think it's just a good time for us to really think through what's essential about the church. Because what I find amazing, and you probably already know this, is that during this pandemic, we probably have more in common with the early church than we've ever had before in our country. And so perhaps, perhaps this will shed light on how radical the early church was. Perhaps this will shed light on what they did and how uh, they had the urgency for the gospel. Even when they were told they can't meet together, even when they were told they can't gather together, even when they were told they're unimportant, the church said, "I I don't think so. And so for us, as we look towards a new reality, a new normal, I want us to think about what is really essential for the church. Because I believe we have an opportunity to become more relevant and more active and reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ after this than we've probably ever had before in any of our 
lifetimes. You see, because crises, well, they're not new to the church. The church has been around for 2,000 years with all the nations and all the leaders and all the outbreaks and all the wars and all the crises. The church has been around this whole time. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that in a minute. So here's what we're going to do for the series. We're going to take a hard look at the early church and see what they did. They laid the groundwork for this whole thing. And so we're going to look at what they did and why they did it. We're going to see how they took what Jesus said and actually put it into practice so we can see why we do what we do and hopefully get back to the roots of this thing. In other words, I, I want us to become traditional. But I don't want to stop in the 1950s. I want us to go back to the 50s, to 50 AD. I'm talking really traditional, back to what started this thing. Luckily for us, they wrote it all down. And so for today, this sermon is just an introduction for the whole series. You see, before we can actually talk about the essentials of the church, today I just want to make a case for, well, the church itself being essential. That as we gather and because we gather and as Jesus followers, that the actual church itself is important. You see, Essential is a noun, as we're using it, and it define, it's defined as a thing that is absolutely necessary. And, and what I want to teach you today is that the church, for a Jesus follower, is absolutely necessary. For example, before a business during this time could figure out what essential functions they did and to, before they could figure out what essential employees they needed to pull it off, the government, right, first had to say they were essential before they could practice. And, that, and that's kind of the idea. Before we get into the essentials of our church, I want us to all understand that the church, the gathering, the assembly of God's people is essential to being a Christian. It's not an option. It's not a nice to have. It's essential. But the thing is, I haven't always thought it was. See, growing up, don't tell anybody, it's between me and you, okay? Growing up, I wasn't a fan of the church at all. I loved Jesus. I just didn't like his people that much. I didn't understand them, and they didn't understand me. We went to the church during my elementary years for a bit, and we moved around a lot. And then as we settled down in my youth, I would, I would try to go, and I, I just didn't understand them. I didn't get it. They just seemed irrelevant to my life. And the things they were talking about, I wasn't going through. And the things I was going through, nobody was talking about it. I never understood the preacher, and I'm not saying that's his fault. I'm just saying I didn't understand him. But it's as if the church had their own secret language that you had to know about before you went, before you could understand what's going on. It, it's kind of like when you're a freshman in high school, you finally get the courage and you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a sport this year. I'm a freshman. This is new. They're, they're having tryouts. So I'm going to go and join them and learn like everyone else just to find out that everybody there has already been playing for all these years. And you're kind of like, well, we're, how, do I, how do I catch up? How can I be a part of this? So that actually happened to me in high school too. That's why I can make that point. 
You see, I had enough to deal with in my life to add more stress. I love Jesus. I listened to preaching on the radio. I used to listen to this Calvary Chapel. I got, it was on 90 Joys, a Christian radio station, do verse by verse preaching. I mean, I loved listening to God's word. I read my Bible quite a bit, but the church and their world and my world just seemed too different. It's like, it's like I had to become one of them before I could be a part of them. Like I had to figure out everything that was acceptable before I went. I couldn't just be, be me. And maybe, and not for all of you, and I understand that. Maybe you've had similar experiences. Maybe you've had a hard time, you know, finding a church and, and going to church and perhaps you felt judged. Perhaps you didn't understand. Perhaps you think the church is irrelevant. I mean, I, I, I really do get that. Maybe you've had a hard time fitting into church and their customs and practices. You're like, I, I just don't get this. Listen, I, I get that. I mean, I still have a difficult time fitting into church and I'm a pastor. I still get told what I'm supposed to wear, what furniture I'm supposed to use, how I'm supposed to talk. I'm not joking. I still go through the same thing you may be experiencing. But I hope to show you that that shouldn't deter you, that we should still gather and figure this thing out. Maybe you've just done way too much stuff in your life and you're like, man, if they really found out what I did, they would never accept me. I mean, I get that. Maybe you think the church is just weird. We are. It's, I mean, it just, it's true. We, we are a little weird. It's okay. Maybe you've had a hard time finding a church, connecting with others, getting in a group of people that seem to be going through the same things you're going through. I understand that. That can be exhausting. When we just first got married, we, it was so hard to find a church we could go to, just so hard to connect and kind of get through the barriers of, of relationships that were already built up. So it can be easier just, just not to attend. I mean, I get that. Or perhaps you, you grew up in church, you know the church is important, but, but it's never really been like an essential for you, right? It's kind of like a nice to have, like the if it's convenient list. Do you have one of those? It's not like if I have time, if my hair is right, if I have nothing else to do on Saturday night, if I wake up on time, if my kids act right, if all of that stuff magically comes together, then, then I'll definitely go to church. No matter where you've been, no matter where you are, I hope to help you understand today that the church is absolutely necessary for a follower of Jesus or a Christian. And I say this and I tell you this as a person who didn't believe that at one point. I thought it was completely irrelevant to my life. But now I've given my entire life to it. That's how important I believe it is now. Simply because, well, this whole thing was Jesus's idea. And that's a great place to start. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 16. We're gonna jump into a middle of a book, which means there's a lot that's already happened. I'll catch you up in three sentences. Here's what's been going on. Jesus has been teaching. A lot of people are following him, but nobody is quite sure what to make of them because all of their teachers and their preachers and their Sunday school teachers and government officials, nobody knows what to do with Jesus. He's saying things that, no, that nobody's ever said. He's teaching with an authority. Instead of him like just pointing to the scriptures, he's saying it as if his word matters and what he says carries just as much weight. 
I mean, that's not the only thing. Lame people are walking, the blind are seeing, hungry are being fed, I mean, the dead are being raised. I mean, there's all sorts of things going on, so they don't know what to do with them. He's not getting along with this religious elite, like, at all. But yet, they can't deny that he has to be from God because what he's doing is just amazing. So they really don't know what to do with him. So Jesus asked them a question, his, his people, his followers, that you probably don't want to ask your friends. You may not like what they say. He says this. Uh, Jesus asked in Matthew 16, verse 13. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And so he's asking his followers, he says, hey, what's the report about me? What, what are people saying? I mean, his, his disciples don't even get what's going on, but yet they're following him. They're like, so Jesus like, what, what's going on? What are people saying? And they replied this, verse 14. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So there's a massive amount of confusion. They're like, I don't know, you may be a reincarnated person that from the past, or you may be John the Baptist. I don't have a clue how that could happen. He was around at the same time. But either way, they're just saying, we're not sure what to make of this, Jesus. But either way, the report was going around that he was a prophet of some sort. Because if, if you were with us for the last series, we learned all about Elijah. And if you remember, prophets do incredible things. Like God uses them in a powerful way and people don't usually like what prophets say. I mean, check them out. They, they really rebuke them. And so they're like, I don't know, you're probably like one of these prophets. Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That's the most important questions for each one of us to individually ask. Who is Jesus? But that's, that's for another day. Peter spoke up. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You see, a Messiah means anointed one. But like any title, it's developed a full range of meanings, especially for these guys. It came to mean a kingly figure who would triumph over Israel's enemies. So, so he says, you're the Messiah, but he also has the son of the living God. And that's a massive term. It's saying that he belongs to God in a way that nobody else does. He belongs to God like nobody else has. He shares a special relationship with God. You see, this is the fullest confession of faith up until this point showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one they've been waiting on, but he's also the son of the living God. He has this relationship with God that nobody else has. They were still learning what this meant, but this is a big confession. Jesus replied, blessed are you, verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You see, the father had revealed to Peter who Jesus was. He wasn't just an ordinary prophet. He was actually God here with him. Nothing that the world has ever seen. And after this confession, they can now learn more. The father has revealed to Peter who Jesus truly was. And now Jesus is going to reveal to Peter what his plans are for the future. This is called progressive revelation. It's the way God works. You should expect this. He's not going to give you everything at once, but as you grow to understand and learn, he's going to reveal more and more. And it's a 
a continual growing process. There's never a point where you and I ever arrive and have it all figured out. We continually grow and grow. And he tells them this. He says, I will build my church. If that's not already underlined in your Bible and you underline your Bible, you need to circle that, highlight it, whatever you do. And this word for church, we confuse it today and just, just know it simply means assembly or gathering of people for a specific person, uh, purpose. Simply put, he's saying, Peter, on this confession of faith of who I am, I'm going to build my gathering of people, my assembly of people, the church. And you and well, the rest of the apostles are going to play a key role. And this gathering, what I want you to see, this gathering that he tells them is always built on a confession of who Jesus is. The Messiah. The son of the living God. The one who has come to save us. You see, this gathering of people, the church, that's what our gatherings are built upon. And Jesus says, and nothing will overcome it. I mean, we've talked about that before, the idea that gates of Hades shall not overcome it. Just understand, Jesus is speaking to the everlasting na uh, nature of his gatherings, that nothing will overcome it. Which sounds, I mean, think about it. Jesus is with a couple of people in the middle of the Roman Empire. Nobody likes him. The strongest nation the world has ever seen, dominating absolute everybody. And Jesus says, I'm going to start this gathering, this group of people and." Nothing's ever going to take it out. Nothing. They're like, okay, Jesus. Right. Nothing. In 2,000 years, here we are. After all these years, after every war, through every outbreak, and during every powerful nation, the church, the people of Jesus are still here. See, this whole idea of Jesus followers gathering around him, this was, this was his idea. He said he was going to build this gathering around the confession of faith. And, and luckily for us, he's not done, well, really, he's not done revealing and Peter's not done talking. And because of those two elements, we get to see a glimpse of what Jesus wanted for this gathering. We get to see a glimpse of the whole idea behind it and, and what he's doing with these people. So after he revealed, so Peter says, all right, you are the Messiah, Son of the living God. Jesus says, yes. Yes, and, and on this, I will build my church, my gathering of people. And so he reveals to them what's going to happen. He reveals to them that he's going to suffer, die, and be raised to life. He's telling them how this whole thing's gonna come to be, how the church is gonna start because of his death and because of his resurrection. Something else is going to happen. But Peter, Peter said, no, it's not gonna happen. You look at his, you gotta love Peter, I do. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He just said that he was the son of the living God and he pulls Peter aside like, let me talk to you real quick. Peter's like, come here, Jesus. It's not gonna happen. He re rebuked him. Lord, never, he said, this shall never happen to you. Peter's newfound confession and role went to his head rather quick. Jesus turned and said, Peter, excuse me, said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I mean, ouch. Here's the picture. 
It's been a great confession of faith. They've finally been revealed of who Jesus is. They're finally starting to wrap their mind around who Jesus really is, who's in their midst. And then Jesus says, yes, yes. And on that, I'm going to build my gathering. Here's how it's going to happen. I'm going to die for the sins of the people. I'm going to be raised to life. And and Peter and the apostles, hey, y'all are going to play a really big role in this thing. The first thing we see is human concerns try to get in the way of God establishing his church. Because Peter, I mean, he was comfortable. Peter liked the way things are. I mean, why change him? Peter had expectations on what the Messiah should be and how the Messiah should act. And he had roles and expectations. No, no, Jesus, here's what you're supposed to do. Not that way. I need you to do it this way. And what I want you to see, because this makes church people, all of us, Jesus, it makes us really uncomfortable. But notice Jesus doesn't coddle or comfort his point of view. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, it's okay. That's just Peter being Peter. We know he has outbursts. We know his personality is a little big. I mean, it's okay that he acts like that. Just, it's okay, don't worry about it. No. He immediately shuts it down. He says, Peter, you're believing a lie from Satan. And Jesus puts an end to it. Because God was moving in their midst. Jesus was standing in front of them. God himself incarnated, explaining to them What he had come to do, he had come to be the Messiah and defeat their greatest enemy, but it wasn't Rome, it was sin. He had come to deliver them from this, and here's how it's going to happen. And he's going to build his people around his death and resurrection. And Satan used that change, that opportunity, that uncomfortable conversation to whisper a lie to Peter. Oh, Peter, you don't want that. Peter, come on, change it. May I suggest that whispers from Satan that focus in and tunnel in on human concerns are the number one thing that gets in the way of God's church. When individuals assume their way and their points of view and their concerns and their opinions are what's more important than seeking the mind of God. The church is here to bring him glory. He is our primary concern. His wishes, his desires, and his mission is what we are about as his people. The church is his. You see, God's son, Jesus, was standing in their midst. He wasn't asking them what they wanted. He was explaining to them what was going to happen. And I imagine Peter could have called the other 11 apostles, broke out Robert's rule of order, and said, hey, guys, listen. We're going to get a quorum and we're going to vote about this thing. We're going to, mm -mm, we're going to, no. But Jesus shut it down. And not only was Peter publicly rebuked for his selfishness, Jesus then, this is every church person's worst fear, because Jesus then uses it as a platform to go into a conversation, a teaching moment. He's like, hey, you see what he just did? No. Let me explain this to you. Here's what it's going to look like. And he explains what this community needs to be about, what this community is, who they are, and what they need to focus on. He says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, immediately after rebuking Peter, we kind of missed those connections, but that's exactly what's going on. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
I want you to see and really understand the direct connection between the establishment of the church and discipleship, how they go hand in hand, how they're one and the same. It's the same conversation that the church is the gathering of disciples of Jesus Christ. They are the people who deny themselves. See, a call to discipleship is a call to deny yourself and your wants and your desires. It's a call to live without self-centeredness. Now, we all get those feelings, but it's a call to deny them, to rebuke them, to repent from them, and be exclusively and utterly devoted to Jesus and his work. You see, Peter wasn't focused on what God was doing in the world. Peter was focused on his little world and how these would affect him. But God was saving the entire world. God was doing something massive that Peter needed to get on board with. He said, take up your cross, which is be willing to face death. I mean, it can't get any clearer than this. The disciple, a follower of Jesus, needs to be ready to suffer for Jesus. That's not easy. I'm not saying it is, but it's been in here the whole time. He says, take up your crawl, um, excuse me, and then follow him. This is the most common call that Jesus gave to anyone who wants to come after him. Follow me. Do as I do. Be as I am. And this is literally what a disciple did. They literally followed Jesus everywhere. You see, a disciple is simply a committed follower of Jesus. And and that's what we are as Christians. We're committed followers of Jesus. And I know we don't use this idea of discipleship much anymore. We call them like interns or or things like that. The best comparison I could come up with is if if you wanted to be a lawyer and you were in law school, you would, and, and then you decided to work for a lawyer who practiced the same type of law that you wanted to practice. And so you worked with them to learn and do what they did. So then you could repeat that. Th- that's what a disciple is. They wanted to become like their teacher. They wanted to become like their master. You see, a call to discipleship isn't just for some. There is no scripture, no connection anywhere in the Bible that you have a saved group over here and then a special calling of discipleship over here. Saved people are disciples. Disciples are saved people. They're one in the same. And the task of a disciple is simply to learn, to study, and to pass along the teachings of their master, which, as you know, is exactly what we do as a church. We learn, we study, and we pass along the teachings of Jesus. See, being a Christian is synonymous with being a disciple of Christ. We see this in Acts 11, 26, the second part of the verse. says, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were called, what's that word? Yeah, Christians. The disciples were Christians and Christians were disciples. There aren't different categories. They're one in the same. Christian literally means the Christ people. You see, when you call yourself a Christian, it's not about how you were raised. It's, it's not about what your mom forced you to do when you were younger or what you forced your kids to do. Being a Christian is being a committed follower of Jesus Christ. You are saying you're committed to learning, to studying, and to living out his teachings and then passing them along to other people. That's, that's what the church is. A gathering of those people to learn, to study, and to pass along the teachings of Jesus. You see, if we don't get this part down, that the church itself is essential, and the church is made up of disciples, 
If we don't get that down, then the rest of the essentials won't make any sense. But once we get this, we'll see how the others make perfect sense. Like, for instance, why we take the Bible so serious. Well, because we've already said, as a Christian, we're, we're here and as a disciple to learn, to study, and to pass along. So we would then learn and study what he says. That's, our, that's why we do these things. And what I want you to see is this whole idea of the church, this whole idea of discipleship. This was Jesus's idea. You see, the church wasn't just for church people because there weren't any. The church wasn't about a location because there wasn't one. And the church wasn't about style, liturgy, or, or ritual. There weren't any. It was simply, it was simply about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. This was and his his calling to all of us who confess him as the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he told his followers, well, to continue doing this after he leaves. After he accomplished what he said he would, he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave three days later. He gave his disciples marching orders. It's found in Matthew 28, 19. You've, You've heard this before. It says, go and make disciples of all nations pretty clear. So in Jesus, just to give you an overview, maybe you've never made it all the way through a gospel. From the beginning, Jesus calls people to be his disciples. He says, come follow me. Like he says it all throughout there. Come, come follow me. And so he shares a discipling relationship with them for about three and a half years. And they learn to be like Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. And they say, okay. And then when he leaves, he says, now go and do it with others. Make more disciples. And thankfully, that's exactly what they did. That's how we are who we are and why we still have the church. They understood the purpose of the church is about discipleship, and discipleship is the church. They understood his command. And when he rose from the grave, this is very important. When Jesus rose from the grave, they stopped questioning him and just started doing it. They're like, you know what? I'm good. This is what he said to do. Let's just get on with it. We know how those questions work. They never were good for us, ever. If he can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm just going to believe him. He tells me to go make a disciple. I'm going to go do it. The book of Acts records this for us. This is what I want us to to look at a lot, this this series. You see, before Jesus uh, ascended back to heaven, he he told them to go to the city and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And they did. About 120 gathered in the room and the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit came, boy, it shook everything, made a commotion. That's what the Holy Spirit does, just to let you know. And so the Holy Spirit came. I mean, things were going on, got the entire city's attention. So people gathered around this building going, what, what's going on up there? What, what, what's this commotion? And Peter, of course, being Peter, went out and started preaching. Said, here's what's going on. He shared a simple message. Simple message is that Jesus, the Messiah, the one that was prophesied about as Lord of all who died for their sins. And he really focuses on a single event. And, and this is all throughout Acts. The one thing they focus on over and over and over again is that Jesus died but rose again. Like he really rose. We saw him. He came out of the grave. I know it's hard to believe, but he rose from the grave. That's the event. That's the event that launched this whole thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this caused a significant movement, a simple message about a, excuse me, focused on a simple event, caused a significant movement. 
After Peter was done preaching, Acts 2.41, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Please notice Peter doesn't say, all right, now that you've done this, come back at 11 o'clock next week, we're gonna do this again. This time we're gonna teach you some songs, we're gonna break out some books. No, they immediately start living life together. They immediately grab people and start discipling and start teaching and living together because that's what Jesus did with them and that's what we are to do with others. Not just show up every week to do something, but come together and live life because that is what Jesus has asked us to do. You see, the church, the gathering, the assembly of God's people came together because of discipleship. As they trained up other people, and wherever you have disciples, you have the church. Mike Breen says it this way. I love this. He says, if you make disciples, you always get the church. You always get the church. But if you make a church, you rarely get disciples. Meaning, we're going to do church because it's something we think we're supposed to do, so we're just going to do this church thing. That really produces true followers of Christ. He says, most of us have become quite good at the church thing, and yet disciples are the only thing that Jesus cares about. It's the only number that Jesus is counting. Not our attendance, not our budget or buildings. Effective discipleship builds the church, not the other way around. See, what Jesus promised is that a gathering was gonna form under a confession of faith who help others grow in their relationship with him. The church, well, the church discipled. It wasn't a program, it wasn't an extra thing, it was what they did. A movement of a community of people with a simple message focused on a single event launched a significant movement. And history shows us this works. I mean, today there's books. I mean, I'm telling you, I studied it. There's books and books about how churches are dying and about what can we do to be relevant and, and why, why do we seem irrelevant? And what is it? The studies show 85% of the churches are dying, meaning they're going the opposite way or they're not rising at the rate of their community, which means stagnant. So, I mean, churches all over are trouble. And I bet you know this. There's articles all over about churches dying. It's because it's a discipleship issue. You see, history shows us this work. You see, scholars estimate around 100 A.D., Around 100 AD, there were, about, there were as few as 25,000 Christians. Meaning, about 100 AD, the first century followers, the, the immediate followers would have, would have died. Uh, this would be second generation Christians at this point, third generation. And all the original apostles then would have died. So about 25,000 people after the first 100 years. And here's what we know. Christianity was illegal. They were tolerated at times, but severely persecuted at others. But Christianity was illegal. They didn't have church buildings as we know them. Archaeologists have have found a couple of of smaller buildings, wouldn't have fit that many people, but they mainly met at houses. They didn't have these massive buildings. They didn't have the scriptures as we know them, because it was during this period, 100 on, that the scriptures were being formed. It's called the canon, like this whole process. We'll talk about it next week, but they they were still pulling this together to, to get what we have today. Did you know it was hard to join the church? Before someone was baptized, they were required to pray, fast, commit to live a moral life, and have a foundational understanding of the Christian belief. 
They had to fast. I see why they practiced infant baptism, don't you? They're like fasting. I'm sorry, I'm just not going to do it. Sorry, that was a bad joke. I think it's funny. And then they were mocked for their doctrine. Christianity was conceded for the weak-minded, barbaric. They were greatly misunderstood because there was a rumor floating around that they actually ate people's flesh and actually drank blood. Would you join a group that was rumored to do that? And they were thought of, check this out, this is going to bother every American. I know this. They were thought of as unpatriotic because they didn't believe in the gods of Rome and being a Roman was believing in the gods. And so Christians were unpatriotic people. Despite all of these challenges, listen, from 100 AD to 310 AD, that's about 210 years. This is before Christianity becomes illegal in 313, okay? Before it was legal, the, about 200 years the church grew. Sociologists estimate the church went from as few as 25,000 people to 20 million people. And yet none of the advantages we have today were on their side. Not one of them. The church blew up. Because discipleship was the foundation. Teaching people, helping people grow in their faith. See, when history has shown us that when difficulties come, the church can explode. Because difficult allow all of us to get pretty quick to what's truly important. And right now, we have an opportunity as a church so unique. The entire world has been shaken. Things that people cling to, things that people thought saved them, things that people thought gave them hope, things that that people just knew would make the world a better place, all has come crashing down because of a virus. The world has realized they're not nearly as in control as they thought they were. And people are desperately in need for, for hope. And we have it. We always have. That hope is not found here. It's found in the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So let's get back to a simple message about a single event. And let's be a part of a significant movement called the church. You see, the guiding question that should lead all of our church meetings, all of our conversations when we talk about the church is simply this. Is this making disciples? Is this helping people grow in their relationship with Jesus? Is this helping, or is this teaching people to deny themselves, take up their cross, and following him? See, my greatest concern as a pastor, and I'm serious now, My greatest concern as a pastor is being held accountable before the Lord for enabling people's immature, self-centered faith. It scares me so much that I'm gonna stand before him one day and I'm gonna have to give an account for that. But we're only in week one. We still got plenty more to go, so we'll get there. But the church, this whole thing was his idea, which means he sets the agenda. And he tells us what we do. The mission of the church has always been to help people become committed followers of Jesus. And you commit to a local church to say, they're going to disciple me and I'm going to help disciple them. That's the whole point. That's what we're here for. All of us. Even you. 
man, you, we all are to take part in this. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today as Jesus followers who confess that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, the one we have put our hope and trust in to deliver us from sin and raise us to a new life. Father, we are expecting for you to use the church, our church and the church globally in a mighty way for your glory now. Father, you've gotten the world's attention. Please speak to us and use us as a community to spread the gospel to others. As a gathering of your people, Father, allow us to see the vision you plan for your church. Allow us to understand that we are to be a people gathered together, committed to developing each other. Father, help us see where we are clinging to things that are unhealthy. And allow us to see the urgency of discipleship. Father, we are here for your glory and your work. Thank you for the grace you have given all of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Before Scott goes, I'm going to keep talking. I just want to say one thing that was on my heart. You know, a couple of, of weeks ago, I got to go to a church in, in South Carolina that's, that's just growing. It, it's, it's not that old, but, but it's, it's just a pretty big church. And uh, they're very different than what you'd think of for a big church. And I remember talking to the pastor, and he was sharing me with me what they did. And I was just looking at it, and I was so excited about the people they were reaching for Christ and the movement they were making. I mean, the, all the stats about churches, I mean, they're defying all of them. And I just said, what are you, what are you doing? He says, well, we just ask a simple question. Is this making disciples? And I said, yeah, I know, but it has to be more that. He's like, no. If we're not making disciples doing these programs or these things or these events, then we don't do them. Because discipleship is what matters. And when he said that, just this burden came off of me and it just reminded me that church, that's what we've been called to. That's why we exist. And I promise that Jesus will bless and use us in a mighty way when we get back to that.